You're listening to Drones in America on MarketScale. Your host, Grant Guillot, leads the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Practice Team for the law firm of Adams & Reese. Every week, he will be chatting with leaders, influencers, and experts who are impacting the rapidly growing commercial drone industry in the United States to help us through the complex web of technology and policy. On this episode of Drones in America, we welcome a special guest, Anthony E. Zyker, the creator of the most successful TV show of all time, Crime Scene Investigation, or better known as CSI. Besides creating and writing about how to solve the world's most macabre crimes, Zyker has been a longtime drone enthusiast. Drones are revolutionizing almost every industry, and yet throughout pop culture lore, drones still get a bad rap as a vehicle of suspicion. Zyker dives into what needs to happen to help alter this dangerous narrative and to help get the UAV to be a trusted tool. Thanks for tuning in today for a very special episode that is sure to be very interesting. Today, we are focused on the use of drones in crime scene investigations, as well as in filming and photography in general. And with that, we have a very special guest today. Our first is a man who needs no introduction. His name, of course, is Anthony E. Zyker. Great. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. We also are joined today by the founder and CEO of DroneUp, Tom Walker. Welcome back to the program. Grant, as always, thank you for having me on. So let's start, Anthony, by kind of talking about how you came to the process of creating and running the most successful TV series of all time. You know, with four iterations of the series, you have the original CSI, CSI New York, CSI Miami, and then finally CSI Cyber. I know when you were dreaming one day of being a creator of a TV series, you probably never imagined you'd be creating the most successful one of all time. What led you to creating CSI? Well, I think I should thank my mother for having an only child, which is to me, I grew up in Las Vegas all of my life, very curious about the sciences, about technology, and I just loved it. But once upon a time, as legend has it, I guess TV legend has it, I was watching a a show on Discovery Channel called The New Detectives. And in that particular episode, there was a murder of a cheerleader. Her name is Linda Sobeck from the Oakland Raiders. And she died at the hands of a photographer. Now, when they actually found her body, and when they found the Jeep of the photographer, they found one key piece of evidence. And that was a long blonde hair follicle that was actually attached to the headrest of the passenger seat. So when they actually tweezed that hair follicle out, at the very end of the follicle was a tag cell or a seed. Now, what does that mean? That means that her hair was yanked out in some sort of a struggle or a tussle. And I remember at that point, I said to myself, wow, all that information on a single hair follicle? And the idea for CSI was born. Because I learned very early in the philosophy that the body is the perfect specimen for giving clues when it can't speak for itself. What I know you probably don't recall the exact year that was, but were DNA analysis, was that a thing at that point? 
Well, a thing is a very loose term. So, you know, when I created CSI and it debuted October 6th of 2000, I was already researching it, I would say June of 99. So DNA was part of our world and the crime world, but it really wasn't like it is today with mitochondrial DNA and some of the advancements that have taken place. But you would have a machine, you'd have a swab and put it in and, and push a button and do its analysis thing. It would come back that, you know, you're one of, you know, six billion people on the planet that could not have done this or, so that, that, that did exist. But I will say this CSI effect, meaning when CSI is in the public consciousness in juries, when it's actually in the, the lexicon of the world, it was a very different world before CSI and after CSI in terms of how we did things in a courtroom. If you see movies and TV shows before CSI, everything has really, really changed. So I think this is an example of art really improving and advancing scientific technologies in our future. And uh, now here we are in 2021 and things are completely different in the DNA world. Absolutely. So moving on to, I guess, what's the main subject of the podcast today, of course, drones. I sat down uh, last night with my wife and my children, and we actually watched an episode from season one. I believe it was CSI New York, and it was titled The Dove Commission. And forgive me if I if I get the plot jumbled, but I believe what, what you ended up having was there was this group of judges and attorneys um, called the Dove Commission. And basically, this group is at a bar in presumably New York City. And out of nowhere, shots start coming through the glass. And um, you know, spoiler, spoiler alert, um, one of the main leaders of the commission is shot and killed. And a woman in a red dress is also shot and killed. Again, spoiler alert, we end up learning later in the episode it was the wrong woman in the wrong red dress. But regardless, um, what was so fascinating to me, this episode, I believe, was shot in 2005. And drones, although they were certainly around then, they, they were not as prevalent as they are today. So uh, a large focus of that episode became what was the murder weapon? Was a sniper standing on a roof somewhere and shooting, or rather it would have had to have been two snipers because there were two bullets entering at the same time. Um, what gave you the idea in 2005 to essentially make an unmanned aircraft the weapon? That's a good question. Well, first of all, let's clarify that the actual event, the bar and restaurant where this shooting took place was about 94 stories high. <laughs> so that's the right. first it wasn't like it was a ground level thing. The second is before that particular episode, don't forget, when we would take aerial shots as a television production company, we, it would all be on camera rigs with stabilizers on a helicopter. So the, the, the vast majority, if not all, of our content in the air is only a helicopter. It wasn't until that particular episode, this is 2005, so what does that mean? If CSI debuts October 6th of 2000, five seasons later, we are easily into 150 episodes. So we're looking for new ways to kill people. That's for sure. We did have two particular miniature helicopters slash drones that can be elevated up with a camera rig that were equipped with two firing projectile barrels that actually made the shooting happen as the murder weapon in this episode. Now, of course, one of the helicopter slash drones failed on the day. We had a backup one, thank God. That ended up crashing on set, almost hurt one of our actors, Gary Sinise, but that's that's just all water cooler stuff for you big fans. But what it did do is it taught us that, hey, is there a different way 
where we can actually shoot from the air with a different apparatus besides a helicopter. And that was the birth for us as a franchise where the smaller aerial craft with a grounded pilot had the ability to bring our show to the air, to the world. And therefore the drone conversation 2005 began. And that's amazing. And what I find so neat about this, and I think Tom, you'll agree, we're obviously talking pre 107. Uh, so this is a good t over 10 years prior to part 107 coming out. And so here you have drones being used in a commercial setting, really a, a great case. Um, it also has another side to it, which it's really not the best public perception angle for what drones can do. But at the same time though, this was 2005. And uh, um, Tom, what, what are your thoughts on that? The fact that the, Anthony was doing this 10 years ahead of time. Well, I, I've always been impressed. A a Anthony, people ask me about him and they say, what do you think about him? And I say, he's a, he's a prolific showmaker, but he's a business person and he's creative and he thinks way over the horizon. And this was a perfect example of being way out in front. Um, it's interesting though, because uh, you know, people talk about drones and how uh, they've been around forever and they've been around forever. But the reality is, is I tell people this all the time. It wasn't up until about three years ago that we could go down to Best Buy and buy a drone that has more technology on it than the space shuttle. Prior to that, most people in, in the general public didn't really know what we meant by drones. They typically thought military or they thought, you know, had other uh, alternative views on them. Some of those created by like shows uh, that we did uh, a long time ago, which I, I don't think is negative. I, I think it was, like you said, it was pre-107. It was even pre-commercial application of what we're doing now. Uh, but I, I think it's great. I think it showed vision. And I think it. I think there were a lot of people who were finding innovative ways to use them well before uh, they were mainstream as they are today. And I should also add what's impressive, Anthony, is the thermographic aspect of it. I know there's a part where they're showing how the remote pilot used thermal imagery to locate his intended victims. Of course, he ended up getting a woman wrong, but it's not for a lack of a correct body temperature. Um, those are mechanisms that are very much used today in the industry. And so I, I found that aspect of it interesting as well, certainly ahead of your time in terms of what, I mean, who would have known that we would have a part 107 today, we'd have all these industries using drones. And here you are in 2005, you know, making it the star of the show. So, so kudos to you on that. I also want to note that I watched the Immortality episode, which was the series finale of the original CSI show. And at the end of that episode, you have um, two, I guess, of the main characters riding away on a boat into the sunset and the aerial imagery the videography is just beautiful and my understanding is you captured that using a drone no question i think tom could speak intelligently more than i can about the specific specs on that drone tom yeah they were using a, an m210 matrice 210 i actually believe you had two of those correct that's correct and why you know why we do two is because just in case you know it's Hollywood. Murphy's Law happens. Sometimes things don't work. On this particular day, both drones worked beautifully. What happened before that shot, Grant, was the fact that one of the ropes got in the water with our main hero boat, got around the engine. A Navy SEAL jumped in the water in Marina del Rey, took out his knife, cut the rope, saved the engine. This put us back about an hour. We raced to the end of the tip of Marina del Rey with two drones 
fired up that are so loud, by the way, with two camera rigs up and running right to race to get the sunset shot. Because obviously, Billy Peterson, Gil Grissom, Georgia Fox, Sericidal were riding off into the sunset of a 16-year arc for CSI. This is a major moment for the whole globe. And the drones, you know, just caught those shots beautifully in different camera angles. Our challenge was that it was so windy on the day. Wind was good for one reason. It made the, our, the American flag wave beautifully. But the bad news is it actually swung that drone up and down and the stabilizer couldn't keep up. So in the cut, the shot was a very big dip watching the boat go to the sun, sunset. We didn't have any money left over to fix it in terms of in post-production. So you know what? I honored the, the integrity of what a drone has to offer. I honored Mother Nature with the wind. We kept the dip in to the best of our ability and we heard the show. I think it was truly beautiful. And, you know, I had a proud father moment because obviously I'm dealing with drones and drone issues uh, really 20 hours a day, you know, when, when I'm not sleeping the other four hours. And my daughter, um, you know, the moment they started filming the aerial shot, my daughter said, Dad, I can tell that's using a drone. And, you know, I, I know it's small, but that was such a proud moment for me that a younger generation is already getting an idea of how great drones can capture imagery and videography. Um, really was a beautiful shot. And another interesting thing that has kind of come out with drones is they're actually being used in crime scene investigations uh, more and more these days. Um, I, what uses have you heard of, Anthony, in terms of how drones are being used in actual uh, crime scene investigations that if the show were still currently on the air, you, you might see yourself incorporating? Well, I, I think the, the obvious answer um, is when we were affected uh, on October 1st, 2017, when Steve Paddock, a lone gunman on the 38th floor of Mandalay Bay, uh, took out 58 people, including himself. Now, I have very detailed files about this particular incident. I've written a graphic novel called One-Eyed Jack, which really, which really talks about that shooting um, from a global perspective of, of gun control, gun violence, and what happened. But I will tell you that I know for a fact that there was heavy drone use as they go over the top of that crime scene uh, because law enforcement and the CSIs are able, with their technology and with their forensic acumen, to go and look at all the projectiles, all the bodies, all the angles, and really, from the very first shot fired, from the very first body shot, to the very first uh, uh, death and killing, can all be determined from uh, not only their practices for science, but that drone shot is instrumental to see how many artifacts are left behind, what directionality did the, the crowd run during the shooting. Uh, you'll see boots and phones and money and purses and personal belongings left behind. Uh, what that did in terms of law enforcement, where they were barricading when the shooter was there. Uh, challenges at night versus the day, the confusion level, all that with the drone is important. So there could be some level of perimeter that goes around Mandalay Bay into the strip and really be able to deconstruct and dissect that from a real crime scene to something on paper that will give law enforcement a lot of information to not only bring peace of mind and justice and return belongings back to the victims and the families, but also be assistive in law enforcement by getting to the bottom of how that crime occurred. You know, you brought up a, a very good point, and that's the use of drones in law enforcement, in, in addition to the 
crime scene, actual crime scene investigations. Um, one of my clients is the Drone Responders Public Safety Alliance, and they're the nation's fastest growing um, assembly of drone users that utilize drones for first response, emergency operations, public safety. Um, I want to talk about something you and I talked about the other day in, in terms of accidents. You brought up the Kobe Bryant crash and, and you know what went on with drones in that situation. I thought you had some interesting things to say about that. Thank you. Well, obviously, that was a tragedy on a Sunday. Um, we all got the news immediately from TMZ. Uh, we've all followed Kobe in his career and our, hats, our hearts go out uh, to his family, Vanessa and, and, and the children. Uh, that happened very close to where I live in Malibu. That was right along what's called Malibu Canyon. And the interesting thing about this is when that plane crashed due to visibility issues, uh, I remember driving by there and seeing easy 15 horses in a makeshift barricade area for law enforcement. And what that told me right away is that the, the ability to navigate that terrain on foot was very, very compromising and very, very difficult. Not only were they setting up a, a perimeter to not go in there for the public to be looky-loose and take pictures, but you can't even get to it on foot. So there's two ways. Either A, you're going to hop on a horse and go through all types of prickly brush and rocks and that kind of thing and hills. Or number two, you're going to fly a drone and go in and be able to take pictures to see burn patterns, take pictures to see uh, all the detritus and uh, uh, elements of what the helicopter crash directionality, uh, how far the fire burned, what was the furthest piece of shrapnel from the helicopter, and that kind of thing. It helps uh, tremendously for the recovery efforts to get to the bottom of that scene, to protect the integrity of that scene, especially with the sensitivity of Kobe Bryant. It was obviously it was global news. But these are where drone pilots are such great heroes in terms of their civil service to go in there and do something that's a very, very difficult job emotionally, um, from the elements uh, to the technical side, to preserve as much as they can uh, photographically from the air to be assistant for law enforcement to bring peace of mind and justice to the case and also uh, keep it from the public until it's necessary. And it's all just very important emotional scientific stuff. And we're very proud of our drone pilots for doing that, especially in law enforcement. It's a great civil service. Absolutely. And I want to pivot for a second based on something you said. You mentioned drone pilots and how drone pilots can really add value to our society through not just through emergency response, but through other uses of drones. Tom, I'm going to direct this question at you and for drone up. What is the first thing if I am an individual and I'm currently either unemployed as a result of COVID-19 or something else, or if I'm a younger individual deciding what I want to do with my life, what kind of career I want to have, and I'm even the slightest interested in drones, what should step one be if I want to become a successful drone pilot? Well, I think the thing that I, I get this question a lot, and, and 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 what's important to note in our industry, in the drone industry, is there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of roles, and, and drone piloting is one. Uh, you know, there's there's the maintenance of the drones, there's the piloting of the drones, there's the data collection of the drones, there's the data analysis of the drones, there's the utilization of the data that can be collected in from drones and integrated to create either more efficient work process or, or eliminate kind of older uh, antiquated work processes. So I, I tell people it's not always about being a drone pilot. It's about wanting to get into the drone industry. Sometimes it's camera operators who are very, very good at being able to, for example, support the type of things that Anthony does 
Um, but, um, you know, so what I would say is I would get involved. I would research drones. I would learn about data. I would learn the difference between optical and infrared and hyperspectral and multispectral. What are all these sensors? Because oftentimes what you can do is you can find out, well, infrared, I understand infrared. I understand thermal. How can I create an opportunity for me and my career or otherwise that is around a particular technology? It's not just flying the drone. Now, I'm not... I'm not saying we don't need more Part 107 pilots. We are going to need it, believe it or not. Even though right now only 4% of the pilots surveyed say they're making an adequate living just being drone pilots. At the very same time, we're acknowledging that statistic. We're acknowledging that two years from now, we estimate we're going to be 100,000 pilots short. So it's an awkward scenario when you're saying, yes, nobody's making money doing it right now, but we need you to go learn how to do it because we're going to need you in two years. Uh, so point is, there's a lot of things, but I want to come back to one thing and just tell you a quick funny story that I think you'll appreciate. Just recently in the last eight or nine months, this was even before I'd had this conversation with Anthony, we were doing some tests where we were doing hyperspectral analysis of crime scenes, being able to fly over a crime scene prior to it being uh, polluted with feet and everything else and using hyperspectral analysis to determine what different fluids were on the ground. And by using quick analysis, being able to essentially build a map of bodily fluids throughout the crime scene so that when the CSI investigators came into the crime scene, they would kind of already have a map. They're not having to get down and look around. They could literally see it. Mm -hmm. And we called a guy, a gentleman who I was referred to, who used to work at DARPA. And I called him and I said, uh, and he's probably going to hear this this uh, podcast and call me on this, but, and I called him and I said, Keith, I said, who can we demonstrate this to? And he said, I'll tell you who you want to demonstrate it to is the guys that make CSI. They used to call us about this kind of stuff all the time. And, and uh, oddly enough, Anthony and I had never even uh, had a conversation about it. So uh, just as a, they were looking over the horizon a long time before we were on some of this stuff. I'd also like to add to that in terms of the confidence of future drone pilots to, to, Look, you, uh, I, I talked to them directly in, in the statement, you know, you, you are the future of Hollywood. You are the future of civil service. You're the future of, of the, uh, the eyes and ears from the sky of drone operation. I can't tell you how valuable a drone pilot is. Uh, you're seeing it already from COVID-19 of the amazing work that Tom and Drone Up has been doing as a civil service to provide materials, to provide medication, any, any, any type of thing to help civilians during this, this trying time. I will say that in the future, I will predict that the drones will be a necessity. Uh, it'll be a booming industry. Uh, it's at its infancy of value. We see that. Tom sees that. And I'm very excited to, uh, to really embrace the future drone pilot, existing drone pilot, into this vast horizon of opportunity. And out of this virus uh, will come many, many opportunities. And uh, we're very excited about the future. I agree completely. I think, and I've had this discussion with several people in the industry, including Tom, but I think, you know, this COVID-19 pandemic really has the ability to be a net positive for our industry because it's going to encourage innovation. And I think a lot of companies are going to be looking for innovative ways to economically recover. And we all know drones are a key way to be able to do that. So I do think it's going to be a positive overall for the commercial drone industry, at least eventually. Now, I want to talk about something, you know, whenever clients ask me, how can I best, uh, how can I make my drone program as successful as possible? In my mind, there's always two uh, 
wheels. I call them wheels and they're spinning at the same time. And as attorneys and as people who advocate on behalf of drones, we're trying to get them to turn together um, in line with each other. And that's the regulatory environment and public perception of drones. Both are necessarily dependent on each other, especially in America, because Americans have such a heightened expectation of privacy compared to other parts of the world. Um, it's funny, I've spoken with several um, of my contacts in Europe and Asia, and they're like, what do you mean people are scared about drones flying overhead outside? No one here is scared of it. People don't care if your drones, if a drone spies on their daughter sunbathing. I use that as, as the example because that is always the example I'm always. confronted with, always. What do moms and dads do with the teenage daughter who is sunbathing? You would think, as much as we get this example, that it is 75 degrees, maybe it is in California, but that it is sunny every day, everywhere in America, and everyone's teenage daughters are sunbathing with the amount that drones spy on them, according to people's worries. And Tom's shaking his head. I know he agrees with me. It's always the example. Public perception is such a huge issue for really helping not only get the regulatory environment on track, but really helping drones progress. And um, I won't fault you for this, Anthony, because in 2005, we were pre-107. And, you know, even though you made the drone a weapon and there, in essence, made it a negative aspect of your episode, you called attention to drones at a time when no one really knew what they were or that, you know, a lot of people didn't know they could do thermal imaging. And, you know, what you did in 2005 was fantastic. And uh, today, the issue we have is you have movies like the latest Spider-Man movie. And there's other movies where drones come lurking, at, like come out of the shadows and always end up helping the villain, you know, try and accomplish his nefarious means. It, it's a tale that um, drones are just being cast in a very negative light. Whereas when you aired your uh, Dove Commission episode, it was still a new thing. Now people know a little bit more about drones, but we're getting these constant negative images of them. As a television creator, as a showrunner, what do you think needs to happen in order for the public to really begin to see drones for the great things they can do? So it's a very good question and it's a complicated answer and I'll try to bifurcate this answer in two ways. So let me put my artistic hat on first. You know, our job at CSI, and people know it's a TV show, they know it's make-believe, they know it's, it's for fun, is to do the most entertaining show possible because we have a very, very, um, we have a very, very specific audience that wants the standard of excellence in the storytelling and the mystery. And we do all that we can, you know, pull all stops to be as responsible and, and creative as possible. Now, sometimes we go too far and we give ideas and sometimes we get pushed back to law enforcement. I remember getting a very, very nasty letter from the, the sheriff in Los Angeles because we gave away a couple of tricks in the investigation. That was us being new in season one, overstepping. We, we pulled that back. We get that responsibility. Um, and number two, you know, I think my short answer is this. Drones have to be positioned in a way to where it's doing good civil service and being assistive to the world, first and foremost, in its coming out party. Look, we can't stop people from weaponizing drones, whether it's fiction. We can't stop people from doing things bad with things in the air. Look, there's a, there's a commercial way to travel on an aircraft. There's an aircraft that goes into a North Tower in New York. Does that mean aircrafts are bad? No. But, you know, we're human beings. We take good things and we take bad things. 
But if we use the drone for positive things to help civil service early, then that will be more necessary and acceptable. But we're always going to have negative things that happen because we're just human beings that want to do bad things with, with, with good things. But I think to really, because I, I do foresee Amazon delivering packages. I do foresee delivering medicine. I do foresee being assisted with drones in terms of helping people. But I hope that the industry positions itself first as a good civil service. And that's the primary thing that we do that goes into the public consciousness to be more accepting that there's more value to these than something that could be done in an adverse way. Absolutely. And again, thank you to you for the great work you've done and encouraging people to innovate and adopt technology. I know you've done it on your show for, what, 16 years? It was 16 seasons the original CSI ran. So um, thank you for that. And, you know, we are almost out of time here, but I want to give, um, first, Tom, I want to give you a chance uh, to let Tell, tell us, does uh, Drone Up have anything in the works that you're comfortable sharing at this time or that we should be on the lookout for? Grant, you've been uh, working with me long enough to know we always have, always have something in the works. Uh, well, I know. I had to ask anyway, though. <laughs> yeah, but uh, nothing that I, I want to share now. But I, I would like to just address the perception question that you ask, and Please. that is, the, the challenge right now is they're new and, and anything that's new until it is appropriately introduced with the positives and the things that it can do, it's going to have a role in anything that's going to be, uh, it's going to be scary. It's going to be unknown. It's going to be mysterious. And then that tends to get translated into negative and, and threatening. But I think the thing that I would always say, and I try to remind people is the majority of the drones that are out there flying, they're not flying by themselves. Um, they're flying by operators. They're flying by operators who are making a living flying those drones, who have certifications and license to fly those drones, who are trying to build a career and feed their families operating those drones. That, that's the majority of what's out there. And if you remember when you see one in the air, that it's most likely being operated by a professional commercial drone operator who, who trust me, nobody wants us to operate responsibly and safely more than me and us and our industry and the people who are building companies around that. And that is who is out there operating those. There, there's always gonna be nefarious actors, always. You could, you could take a blender and turn it into a weapon, but by and large, that's not what we do. And I think we have to do a better job of articulating how important our industry is and that we take care of the pilots and we protect them uh, from uh, from just the, the assumptions that are obviously made by people who don't know what they're talking about. Absolutely, absolutely, I completely agree. Um, Anthony, so is there anything you can share with us that's coming up for you? Well, I have my hands in a handful of things uh, from Broadway to Hollywood to publishing um, to other, other passion initiatives that we have. Um, I'm looking forward to working uh, with, with Tom and Drone Up and learn more about their great industry as a storyteller. Um, I'm happy to have a new friend in Tom Walker. Um, and I'm very touched at the, at the footage that comes back from Fox News uh, of the great things they're doing to help uh, other people during this, these very trying times. I think that's, that's admirable. It stays in, in the pit of my heart as something that's very, very positive. And I'm just thankful to be a part of this platform with you, Grant, um, and this fantastic show. And uh, for all the CSI fans, stay tuned. Hope to come back someday and entertain you. But until then, uh, the world's not a crime scene. It's a great place and stay healthy. 
Thanks, Anthony. Uh, before we conclude, I do want to um, awesome. encourage our listeners to tune in on May 21st. Tom and I will be involved in a webinar that will focus on how drones are getting America back to work, or rather is titled Getting America Back to Work Using Drones. It's going to focus on how drones can help end-user industries economically recover and find innovative ways to um, pull themselves out of the depths that have been brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, please be sure to tune in to that. It's sure to be an interesting webinar with a great panel. Um, thank you, as always, for tuning in to Drones in America. Thank you, Anthony E. Zyker, for uh, all the great wisdom you share with us today, all the great stories. Congratulations on uh, maintaining the title of the creator of the most successful television series of all time. We look forward to seeing what you do in the future, as well as what Tom does with Drone Up. We look forward to seeing you next week. Again, thanks again for tuning in to Drones in America by Mark and Scale.